A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello there, history friends. Zach Twomley here. You're about to listen to part two of the Woodrow Wilson profile. This episode is about half the size of the last one, but it delves into the 14 points. So if you're curious about that, you've come to the right place. If you've no idea where you are right now, this is when diplomacy fails, and you are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, a project which is tasked with, well, detailing the build-up to the signing of that very important treaty in history, complete with all the controversies, characters and chaos that went around during it. Me, I'm Zach Twomley, and I have been doing this for more than six years. I've been able to do it for so long because, well, I have the patience of a saint and I really enjoy doing it. But I've also been able to do it because you guys support this podcast so well. So if you would like to support, by far the best way you can do that is to tell someone about this show. Tell someone about When Diplomacy Fails, tell them that they're doing the Versailles Anniversary Project because they just can't stay away from the First World War era. You can of course support this podcast absolutely for free by telling someone but you can also follow us on Twitter at WDF Podcast, like the Facebook page, join the Facebook group which is doing fairly well at the moment and of course email me wdfpodcast at hotmail.com. Other than that if you're looking to support this podcast financially and get some cute rewards in return head over to Patreon that is patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails And for just $5 a month, you can get an hour of extra content every month, 
plus all the usual episodes, absolutely ad-free, which yes, that means you won't have to listen to me say these things at the beginning of every episode, and we'll just go straight into the lovely music instead. And who doesn't love that? Who doesn't want to avoid, whenever possible, my ramblings at the beginning of every episode? I can tell you who, most people. If you're most people, if you'd like to join the large group of history friends that have joined up and supported this show, then do go over to Patreon and support us for even as little as $2 a month if the $5 isn't your thing. For the $2, you can get all these episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project absolutely ad-free, plus you can also access the transcripts, which come complete with footnoting and references, etc. And because I go into so much detail with these scripts, I don't feel too bad for charging for them. If you're feeling super generous, $6 a month is the other way you can support, because that $6 will buy you a ticket to the delegation game, which I've talked about loads already, so to give you guys a small break, I'm not going to talk about it that much here. But you can, of course, click on the link in the description below to find out more about it, if this is your first time somehow hearing about it. $2, $5, $6. Those are the different levels you can join at and get something back in return. However, if... You don't want to send me your money, as I said at the beginning. Supporting this podcast is absolutely free, and all you have to do is spread the word. Spreading the word is by far the best way to help this show grow. And because I like to see it grow as big as possible, I would really encourage you guys to speak about this, even if you haven't spoken about it before. Or if you have, don't shut up and don't let the people get you down. Don't let the people close your mouth. Just keep on sprouting stuff about when diplomacy fails and how crazy I really am for doing the Versailles Anniversary Project. Alrighty guys, thanks for your patience. I hope you enjoy this show. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 12. Hello and welcome 
History friends, patrons, delegates all, to the second Woodrow Wilson profile episode in the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the previous Whopper episode, we worked our way through Woodrow Wilson's unique profile and the mission he represented in America's name. The crusading, liberal, internationalist wing of the Democratic Party, which Wilson so enthusiastically clung to, did not enjoy the majority support, as we learned last time. But this did not stop Wilson in his mission to remake the post-war order into something so much better than the old. By instituting liberal democracy in Europe, even in its most militarist states, Wilson believed peace would be assured, and by incorporating these states into a League of Honour, the President also believed that collective security, mutual cooperation, and some beneficial trade deals with states that were all getting along would bring about an end to war and an increase in the human experience and prosperity. Speaking of ending war, on the 8th of January 1918, Woodrow Wilson made his boldest step towards ending the war yet, when he set out America's war aims with a level of clarity and depth of purpose which no other Allied or Central Powers member had yet done. The terms of the 14 points were themselves significant, but so was the man who insisted that they be read out to a packed Congress. Following the advice of the inquiry which he had ordered into being, Wilson captured the imagination of audiences the world over with his vision. To some this vision appeared impossible, but to others it promised something. Peace, with honour and with justice. When the time came, as we know, Germany would latch on to this promise, and while it proved in the end to be flawed, it was impossible to deny that the American president had played a profound role in bringing the war to an end with his vision. The story of how Woodrow Wilson concluded the war is a critically important one to understand, if we're to understand then how he planned to conclude the peace. It has taken a great deal of background detail and scene setting already, but considering the central importance of the 14 points in establishing Wilson's ideology and aims, I feel this has been an exercise worth engaging with. As ever, we do not start the episode with that famous scene on the 8th of January 1918, but jump around for effect, so let's begin jumping to late 1918. On the 5th of November, 1918, just as the Lansing Note, or Armistice Terms, were communicated from the US Secretary of State to the Germans, following strenuous preliminary consultations in Paris, Wilson's mandate was collapsing, and Americans were speaking against his vision by voting for their preferred alternative. Not only was the President undermined at just the wrong time, his personal appeal to be allowed to continue his work had also been sharply publicly ignored. Following this setback, it would be reasonable even for Wilson's friends to feel frustrated with him and his misjudgments. Having worked so hard on their post-war plan with Wilson in the driver's seat, the President seemed to have steered the ship onto the rocks at just the wrong time. Yet it was more than merely political shortcomings which Wilson presented. To those that agreed with him, he was friendly and affable, but to those that did not, Wilson was rude, cold and manipulative. He did himself no favours in the aftermath of this disastrous domestic setback. Instead, he seemed to become more in denial, more condescending and less accommodating. Simultaneously, he was also more hopeful, more idealistic and warmer to those who held similar views. He selected the American statesmen that were to participate as plenipotentiaries at Paris with a complete lack of political foresight as he did so. Only one prominent aged Republican joined the President, Edward House, the Secretary of State, and General Tasker Bliss in the American delegation. 
along with 1,300 other minor officials who were tasked with seeing to the busywork, of course. Wilson did not allow the setbacks in the midterm elections to unduly phase him, though they must have itched at the back of his mind. The post-war preliminaries were to be his shining moment, the vindication of all his years' hard work, and the shining light at the end of his tunnel of political setbacks. It is now my duty, he had told Congress just before he departed, to play my full part in making good what they gave their life's blood to obtain. He expected, as did so many others who travelled to Paris, that the preliminary negotiations would preclude a final conference. In the end, the whole process took so long that the preliminary negotiations between the Allies actually became the final peace conference. This helps to explain why the Germans were not invited, in addition to the fact that it was unlikely they would have been invited, even had the anticipated formula been followed. Woodrow Wilson would have preferred for the Germans to be nearby, but as was the case in the United States, it was evident that his peers in the worldwide Allied camp refrained from listening to him when they could get away with it. Considering all these valid and trying setbacks, though, it seemed that not only was Congress tiring of their interventionist, idealist president, but Wilson's very insistence on travelling to Paris to represent Americans everywhere had begun to ring somewhat hollow. Americans as a whole rejected his message. Rather than give their blessing to his party, they had voted for the Republicans, who had far less interest in the remaking of the world order than he did. By voting for the Republicans, they voted against Wilson's dream. He did not represent them if he argued for a policy line which they had voted against. Where this would matter most was in the aftermath. It did not matter if he managed to sway all manner of Europeans towards his thinking. It did not matter if he managed to create a new world order out of the ashes of the old, complete with a League of Nations, mandates, liberal democracy for all, and a workable version of self-determination. None of this mattered because anything he took back with him to Congress for ratification was likely to be rejected. This bitter outcome for Woodrow Wilson was indeed what happened, as we'll see. But considering the political climate of the United States, he really should have seen this outcome coming. It did not require a profoundly clued-in or well-connected official to appreciate this reality. As Harold Nicholson, a senior British foreign office clerk, understood, anyone with even a minimal awareness of American political currents could have detected that Wilson was operating on shaky authority despite being the elected head of state and, certainly in many people's opinions, the most vibrant leader in the peace negotiations. In both cases, the struggle proved to be far more taxing and frustrating than Wilson could possibly have imagined. As passionately and sincerely as he felt about his ideals, these would only go so far when pressed against the bloody experience of over four years of total war. Against such an unprecedented experience, Wilson would be fighting an uphill battle from the offset, which he surely knew. As it had before, during his previous policy enactments though, that characteristic tenacity, bordering on blindly stubborn resistance, returned to him just as he ventured to Paris. Whatever lay in store for him at the French capital, Woodrow Wilson was determined to fight tooth and nail to invest all of his physical resources in the campaign for the kind of systems which he believed the world so badly needed. All he could do against the sheer forces of history, suspicion, tragedy, imperialism, nationalism, bitterness, vengeance, and triumphalism was his level best. We are fast approaching the point where Woodrow Wilson's journey to France becomes our main focus, but before that happens, it's high time we devoted some time 
to analysing the 14 points which Woodrow Wilson held so dear. By examining them, we can see for ourselves precisely why they represented such a bombshell in international relations, and why the defeated powers were subsequently to put such great stock in them and in Wilson generally. It was unquestionably the occasion of the 14 points speech that highlighted the importance of the United States and its president to the rest of the world. Whereas before, the idealistic president had approved of loans to the Allies, had condemned Germany's submarine warfare, and intended to side with the Allies in most matters, it was the 14 points speech that confirmed what many already suspected, that being that America was determined to play a leading role in whatever followed the Great War. Not only that, but where the leaders of Europe could only promise victory, Wilson had the imagination and conviction to commit to so much more. Riding the wave of growing war enthusiasm in the United States on the 8th of January 1918, Woodrow Wilson took the brave step of expressing the platform upon which a lasting peace could be negotiated. This indeed was the true goal of the 14 points. They were not imagined to rescue Germany or to undercut the Allies. Instead, Wilson believed that by outlining the minimal terms upon which peace would be negotiated, he could encourage some version of these negotiations to take place. In the meantime, though, the president would accept nothing less, and he would send his fighting men to bleed and die for these ends. Wilson began his speech auspiciously, referring to the crimes done by the Germans, but also to the dire need of reform in the international system. It will be our wish and purpose, Wilson said, that the processes of peace, when they are begun, shall be absolutely open, and that they shall involve and permit henceforth no secret understandings of any kind. The day of conquest and aggrandizement is gone by. So is also the day of secret covenants entered into in the interest of particular governments, and likely at some unlooked-for moment to upset the peace of the world. It is this happy fact, now clear to the view of every public man whose thoughts do not still linger in an age that is dead and gone, which makes it possible for every nation whose purposes are consistent with justice and the peace of the world to avow, nor at any other time, the objects it has in view. Declaring his goal for a more open world devoid of schemes and manipulation, Wilson then moved to vindicate his foreign policy and to explain again the agonised decision-making process which had forced his hand, he felt, and compelled him to enter the war against the Central Powers. Wilson said, We entered this war because violations of right had occurred which touched us to the quick and made the life of our own people impossible unless they were corrected and the world secure once and for all against their recurrence. What we demand in this war, therefore, is nothing peculiar to ourselves. It is that the world be made fit and safe to live in, and particularly that it be made safe for every peace-loving nation, which, like our own, wishes to live its own life, determine its own institutions, be assured of justice and fair dealing by the other peoples of the world, as against force and selfish aggression. All the peoples of the world are in effect partners in this interest, and for our own part we see very clearly that unless justice be done to others, it will not be done to us. After this introduction, it was then time to get into the meat of the 14 points. The programme of the world's peace, therefore, is our programme, and that programme, the only possible programme, as we see it, is this. Wilson began with an apparently simple point, open diplomacy and an end to private arrangements. Point 1. 
Open covenants of peace openly arrived at, after which there shall be no private international understandings of any kind, but diplomacy shall proceed always frankly and in the public view. A guiding reason for this point was the belief that cabinet diplomacy had helped to engineer the Great War by creating mutually distrustful alliance blocs that refrained from talking to one another or engaging in honest negotiations. Due to the mutual distrust which this atmosphere contributed to, genuine crises could not be worked through and the options open to European statesmen in the pre-1914 era were limited. To some extent, this assessment was a fair one, but it was also assuming too much of the world to expect anyone to be willing to share what they were doing. What was more, it was incredibly vague. Many journalists assumed that Wilson intended by this point to conduct his affairs in the open before a literal audience of journalists, reporters and statesmen, whereas the president had no intention of doing this. All that Wilson really seems to have meant by this point was that the kind of diplomacy which created secret alliances or facilitated background agreements would no longer be valid. Furthermore, it did not take long for even this first point to be abandoned once the once the Council of Ten met from the 12th of January and once they began to selectively exclude other delegates and selectively communicate to the press what they were doing. The second point is understandable when we consider the history of leveraging certain waterways against one's enemies, but as you can probably imagine, one seafaring nation in particular was not happy with it. Point 2. Absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas outside territorial waters, alike in peace and in war, except that the seas may be closed in whole or in part by international action for the enforcement of international covenants. This point Point two on the freedom of the seas proved to be one of the sticking points for the British, who were perturbed that their one major advantage, that of a hulking naval presence around the world, would no longer be used to its advantage. To Wilson, this point would prevent nations like the Turks holding the Dardanelles hostage, or Britain closing off the Suez Canal, or even Panama from closing off its canal, another story altogether. As we have seen in our episodes covering the armistice, though, He was once again hoping for a great deal too much if he expected the British to relinquish the major advantage in their arsenal. Whatever he truly intended the world powers to take from this point, they naturally wished to preserve their freedom of action and ignore it. Neither the British nor the Germans could afford to ignore the advantages accrued to them in wartime from a large navy. In addition, by enforcing freedom of the seas, any blockade such as that which the British had enforced against Germany would be considered illegal. Since this blockade was, so went the narrative, a key reason behind the weakening and later the defeat of Germany, Britain felt that it had to be free in the future to leverage this advantage against its foes again. The third point had the potential to ruffle some feathers, but it at least had potential. Point three, the removal, as so far as possible, of all economic barriers and the establishment of an equality of trade conditions among all the nations consenting to the peace and associating themselves for its maintenance. In an era before the free movement of goods, services and peoples, like that which the European Union provides, for instance, the idea that tariffs could be removed and a degree of free trade be adopted across the world was a stretch especially in those states where notions of free trade and an end to protectionism had not played such a prominent role in politics like it had in Britain or the United States. It seemed like a good idea to rebuild the world by opening up its trade routes, 
but it was also going to be necessary to do a lot of convincing that previously protected industries and economic interests would not be jeopardised in the process. An issue which deserves further consideration was how, in the final weeks of the war, the Allied powers planned to make use of high tariffs to protect their native industry from a flood of German imports. In a world where French industry was shattered and Germany's intact, it was vital for the rebuilding of France that French statesmen in cooperation with the British did not help facilitate a German economic miracle at their expense by removing all barriers to trade and welcoming in a load of finished German industrial goods. Point four was again a great deal more straightforward, at least in theory, and precedents had been established for it before the Great War. Point four. Adequate guarantees given and taken that national armaments will be reduced to the lowest point consistent with domestic safety. It was important that the correct balance was struck with this campaign to reduce armaments. Efforts to reduce armaments in the past and to establish some kind of order to war as seen in the 1899 and 1907 Hague Conventions, well, they obviously failed because exhibit Great War, but they did represent a precedent of nations conferring about the reduction of arms. Between 1890 to 1910, military technology reached unprecedented levels of sophistication and advancement both on land, sea and air, but following the Great War it was at least conceivable that all concerned could be persuaded no good could come of arms races or the possession of large armies. Agreement may have followed, but the problem wasn't necessarily agreement, but mutual distrust. Mutual distrust and fear of Germany was a major stumbling block for the French government to overcome. If she was to disarm to some degree, then Germany would have to disarm too, and her security would have to be guaranteed. Furthermore, the timing of this point was critical, because the French military command feared with some justification that if they rid themselves of too much of their military power, then they would lack the teeth either to defend their own borders from opportunistic predators or to play an effective role in the League of Nations' security actions. Demobilising as soon as the bell rang on the Great War would thus have been fraught with risk, and it was necessary for virtually all of the Allied powers to maintain their armed forces until they wrested the necessary agreements or concessions from the defeated. The fifth point dealt with the question of colonies. While the concept of mandates had not yet surfaced, we'll deal with them in time, don't you worry, Wilson's vision for the future of these colonies would certainly have been at odds with his European allies. To these allies, this fifth point went much too far. Point five, a free, open-minded and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable claims of the government whose title is to be determined. To Britain and France, colonies were a sensitive issue for two major reasons. The first was that colonies represented spoils which were to be fairly taken from Germany as their awards for victory. The second reason had to do with national security, because in order to win the war, both the British and the French had drafted millions of their colonial subjects into the struggle. The transfer of men from French North Africa quite possibly saved France from defeat. By relinquishing these colonies, they would be relinquishing the benefits which these populations and the markets which these people occupied provided. It was bound, therefore, to be a hard sell, and Wilson realised in time, though he was disappointed, that if the Europeans were to abandon their colonies, 
it would take time and a reimagining of their relationship for this to work. With these five initial points established, the 14 points then examined the more country-specific questions which the war had thrown up. As the military situation stood in January 1918, the Allies were by no means assured of victory. Russia had effectively been forced out of the war under the banner of revolution, and the sixth point dealt with her perils first of all. Point 6. The evacuation of all Russian territory and such a settlement of all questions affecting Russia as will secure the best and freest cooperation of the other nations of the world in obtaining for her an unhampered and unembarrassed opportunity for the independent determination of her own political development and national policy, and assure her of a sincere welcome into the society of free nations under institutions of her own choosing, and, more than a welcome, assistance of every kind that she may need and may herself desire. The treatment accorded Russia by her sister nations in the months to come will be the acid test of their goodwill, of their comprehension of her needs as distinguished from their own interests, and of their intelligent and unselfish sympathy. Again, this point was necessarily vague, because it was not yet known in Washington exactly how far the Bolshevik Revolution had gone. Not until the 3rd of March, nearly two months after Wilson's delivery of the 14 points, would the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk be signed, forcing the fledgling Soviet Union out of the war and granting vast swathes of territory to a resurgent Germany. Thus, Wilson's appeal to treat fairly and sympathetically with Russia confirmed that many suspected she was on her last legs. But it seemed at the time also to hold out hope that the Russian government might be of some use for the Allied war effort if the cards were played right. Either way, the catastrophe which surrounded the Russian situation later in the spring of 1918 was above the imagination of Wilson and his administration, even if they suspected that Lenin's aims did not match with their own. Significantly, only a few months after underlining this point, Wilson would approve of American intervention into the Russian Civil War alongside the Whites, this unsuccessful policy and its impact on the negotiations at Versailles will be examined at a later date. The seventh point deals with that small European country which had borne the brunt of Germany's initial invasion westwards and its Schlieffen plan full stop from autumn 1914. Belgium. Point number seven. Belgium, the whole world will agree, must be evacuated and restored without any attempt to limit the sovereignty which she enjoys in common with all other free nations. No other single act will serve as this will serve to restore confidence among the nations in the laws which they have themselves set and determined for the government of their relations with one another. Without this healing act, the whole structure and validity of international law is forever impaired. Few could argue with this point, certainly not on the Allied side. Point 8 added another easily agreeable measure to the mix, this one regarding France and the restoration of her position to pre-1871 with the reattachment of Alsace-Lorraine to her realm. Point 8. All French territory should be freed and the invaded portions restored, and the wrong done to France by Prussia in 1871 in the matter of Alsace-Lorraine, which has unsettled the peace of the world for nearly 50 years, should be righted, in order that peace may once more be made secure in the interests of us all. This, as it transpired, was the absolute minimum of European compensation, which Georges Clemenceau would accept. 
In addition to the Alsace-Lorraine problem, he also wanted to occupy the Saarland and to incept an independent Rhineland state as a buffer against the larger Germany. The burning need to neutralise Germany's military potential was an all-consuming one of Clemenceau's, with good reason as we've seen. Wilson's inclusion of the Alsace-Lorraine issue at least signified that the president comprehended the roots of the Franco-German rivalry which had so dominated Europe for centuries, but fixing that rivalry would be another issue entirely. The ninth point was a fairly innocuous sentence regarding the dark horse of the Allied camp and a supposed great power in its own right, Italy. Point 9. A readjustment of the frontiers of Italy should be effected along clearly recognisable lines of nationality. The problem with this brief statement, as Wilson was soon to discover, was that there existed anything but clearly recognisable lines of nationality where Italians were concerned. Ethnic Italians lived in the Balkans, along the Adriatic coast in Illyria and in the Tyrol. Italians expected to be compensated with land that did not only contain their own people, but other peoples too, and sometimes peoples where Italians didn't even live. And the Italian government had been promised a great deal to enter the war on the Allied side in 1915, in the Secret Treaty of London, which Woodrow Wilson was later to spurn. Wilson's point went far short of this promise, and was in any case too vague at this stage to quantify. It would require further clarification if genuine progress was to be made, a task which Wilson soon recognised for the headache that it was. Point 10 concerned the partitioning of Austria-Hungary. Point 10. The peoples of Austria-Hungary, whose place among the nations we wish to see safeguarded and assured, should be accorded the freest opportunity to autonomous development. The calmly stated tenth point belied the absolute anarchy which would soon follow the collapse of the Habsburg Empire as its neighbours rushed for the spoils and reduced her to a rump German-speaking Austrian state in the process. Habsburg pretensions to Balkan dreams were abandoned, but these Balkan peoples possessed dreams enough of their own to keep everyone busy, as Wilson would soon discover. Eastern Europe, as we have also seen, contained a flood of independently moving pieces, which rejoiced at the chance to grab as much territory as possible in the name of the national interest. Later, Woodrow Wilson would realise that the torrid situation in Eastern Europe made any kind of easy resolution impossible, and he was forced, alongside his peers, to basically give the stamp of approval to fait accomplis, which the likes of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia and Romania had achieved. Neither Wilson nor the inquiry could have been wholly ignorant of the situation in the Balkans, though. They knew enough to state, in point 11, what they believed to be just, but not enough to know exactly how these measures were to be achieved. Point 11. Romania, Serbia and Montenegro should be evacuated, occupied territories restored, Serbia accorded free and secure access to the sea, and the relations of the several Balkan states to one another determined by friendly counsel along historically established lines of allegiance and nationality, and international guarantees of the political and economic independence and territorial integrity of the several Balkan states should be entered into. The restoration of territory was one thing, feelings of vengeance were quite another. The Balkans was a kaleidoscope of competing aims, claims, peoples, languages and religions, where everyone seemed to have an opinion on where and why the borders should be drawn. It was going to take more than vague platitudes like these for Wilson to solve the Balkan crisis, but his commitment to leave people satisfied 
at least represented a good base from which hopeful and ambitious statesmen from the region felt that they could work. The twelfth point dealt with the old overlord of the Balkans, the Ottoman Empire and its anticipated disintegration. Point twelve, the Turkish portion of the present Ottoman Empire should be assured a secure sovereignty, but the other nationalities which are now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development, and the Dardanelles should be permanently opened as a free passage to the ships and commerce of all nations under international guarantees. None of these points were actually realised in the end. The plan to open up the Dardanelles as some kind of international waterway was a pipe dream which ignored the historical connection the Turkish people felt with that waterway and to its ancient city, Constantinople. Furthermore, it was again a case of Wilson being vague and conveniently pleasing several peoples at once with his statements. Ethnic Greeks had long since maintained a presence on eastern Anatolia, which dated back thousands of years to the time when Greek city-states had established colonies there. Yet in these same regions there could often be found a majority of Turks. As per Italy's deal to intervene on the Allied side in 1915, Rome had been promised a great deal of the spoils from the collapsing Ottoman Empire, and she had occupied the island of Rhodes, in addition to other Greek and Turkish islands, by late 1918. The question was thus how to decide whether these regions, or any for that matter, should be parcelled up. Did war promises to the Italians, ancient links of the Greeks, or the ethnic majority of the Turks, enjoy a moral superiority in the claiming game? Woodrow Wilson was not yet sure, but he would define his position in time. The penultimate point represented something of a coup for arguably the most prominent stateless people in Europe up to that point. Wilson's specific reference to the creation of a Polish state commended him to Poles worldwide, but it also provided an additional challenge to the peacemakers who would have to imagine the Polish state into being, and as we have seen in our Eastern Europe Reborn episode, Woodrow Wilson's apparent favour for Poland, expressed in the 13th point, was not as straightforward as some historians have come to suggest. Point 13. An independent Polish state should be erected, which should include the territories inhabited by indisputably Polish populations, which should be assured a free and secure access to the sea, and whose political and economic independence and territorial integrity should be guaranteed by international covenant. The problem with a statement like this was that Poles, much like Germans, Turks, Greeks, Serbians, Italians, and virtually everyone else in Europe, had spread their ethnic wings across the continent as they moved under the different umbrellas of different empires. Now left to pick up the pieces, it would be immensely difficult for the Allies to determine where the borders of Poland ended, and even where they began. The old Polish heartland was the obvious starting point, but should this heartland include Lithuania, her historic companion under the Commonwealth? Nobody could yet be sure, but Wilson's decision to include this Polish point demonstrated to the world that he intended to create something very different to the world which had come before. Now it was the power of one's nationality, rather than the power of one's military or imperium, which determined borders. At least, that was the idea. The final point placed an additional line under the uniqueness of the President's position, and was arguably his most sincere aim of all, the crafting of the League of Nations.
Point 14. A general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to the great and small states alike. This general association of nations would guard the peace and would uphold the peace settlement which was made. It would protect weaker nations from strong ones and place new responsibilities upon those strong nations to treat one's fellow man and neighbour fairly and reasonably. Under Wilson's vision, every race and ethnicity had a right to some form of self-rule, unless of course you lived in Africa, your independence made his allies sad, hello Ireland, he didn't understand the nuances of your history, hello Balkans, or he simply hadn't heard of you, hello Kurds. The 14 points were thus immensely significant, notwithstanding their flaws, because they established a script which others could read from and potentially follow. Yet, you may be thinking, why did the Germans cling so desperately to the 14 points, when from our analysis, there wasn't even any mention of the Germans at all? Well, that's a good question. For the Germans, arguably the most important point of the 14 points wasn't even technically a point at all, but was found in the concluding statement, which is worth outlining here. For such arrangements and covenants, we are willing to fight and continue to fight until they are achieved, but only because we wish the right to prevail and desire a just and stable peace such as can be secured only by removing the chief provocations to war, which this program does remove. We have no jealousy of German greatness, and there is nothing in this program that impairs it. We grudge her no achievement or distinction of learning or of specific enterprise, such as have made her record very bright and very enviable. We do not wish to injure her or to block in any way her legitimate influence or power. We do not wish to fight her either with arms or with hostile arrangements of trade if she is willing to associate herself with us and the other peace-loving nations of the world in covenants of justice and law and fair dealing. We wish her only to accept a place of equality among the nations of the world, the new world in which we now live, instead of a place of mastery. If she is willing to associate herself with us and the other peace-loving nations of the world in covenants of justice and law and fair dealing. Now that doesn't sound like a particularly bad deal, does it? No wonder the new civilian German government latched onto this statement. No wonder they felt so outraged and betrayed when the end result was a far cry from the carefree conclusion to the war which Wilson apparently had promised. Some form of penalty would of course be expected, but the belief that they were signing up for this fair and equal arrangement combined with the fact that Germany was excluded from the peace negotiations for several months, meant that the final treaty, that infamous Treaty of Versailles, proved impossible for many Germans to swallow. Our world is the way it is today because, in the end, the Germans did swallow it, but only partially. It stuck in their craw and choked their people for the next two decades, and it made it impossible to forget either the experiences of the past or the old way of doing things. Whether Woodrow Wilson is to blame for this or not is a question we will address in the future, but there was of course more to the Treaty of Versailles than simply the 14 points which had presaged it, and there was of course more to the outbreak of the Second World War than the Germans being upset about the Treaty of Versailles. The Paris Peace Conference would have to be attended first. The only problem was, everyone had their own ideas about what they were entitled to, what could be accomplished, and who should get what. Nobody, as it turned out, possessed the capacity to imagine the kind of experience which followed. 
because there had never been anything in human history like the scene which greeted the world statesman at Paris in 1919. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 